What you're about to listen to is part two of a four-part series about the Jacobite Wars, the 45, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and the last charge of the Scottish Highlanders. So if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to miss out on a lot of important context. So I recommend that you do that. If you're good, I'm good. Let's go. So if you want a quick recap on what happened last week, check out episode 11. If not, on with the show. The year 1745. The place, the Scottish Highlands. The young prince of an exiled dynasty has arrived to reclaim his father's throne, beginning the last campaign ever fought on British soil. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is episode 12, The Jacobite Wars, part two, Who Will Be King But Charlie? I am your host, James Hauser, and I'm overjoyed to have you with me. Because today, we're going to start the narrative I spent last week setting up. The 45, the last rising of the Highland clans, the saga of Bonnie Prince Charlie, and the road to the Battle of Culloden. Hope you guys are ready, because it's about to get dramatic in all the best and worst ways. But since I'm not a complete jerk, right, I'm going to give you guys a quick recap. Now, where were we? Oh yeah, oh yeah. The Stuart dynasty, one of the unluckiest families in British history, ruled over England, Scotland, and Ireland from 1603 to 1688. The last king, James II, was so unpopular for his pro-Catholic policies that he was overthrown by his daughter Mary and her husband William in what became known as the Glorious Revolution. James and his family were forced into exile, and they would try to regain their thrones for the next seven decades. Their cause became known as Jacobitism. Jacobitism became a vehicle for anyone with a bone to pick with the British government, and that included Scottish nationalists, Scottish patriots. So there were three separate conflicts in 1689, 1715, and 1719 where the Jacobites tried to retake the throne for the Stuart dynasty, but all of these failed for various reasons. These uprisings almost always relied on the Highland clans of Scotland, who would be the literal cutting edge, because they go chop-chop, of any Jacobite army. By 1720, all hope seemed lost, and James Francis Edward Stuart, known to his friends as James III and his enemies as the Pretender, settled into exile in Rome. That year, he and his wife welcomed a baby boy into the family. This baby was Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and it is his story that we will tell today. So, if you don't remember any of that, you may want to listen to last week's episode. I also highly recommend that you listen to the short round I released on Friday, which offers a lot of background and information on the Highland clans, some of the most important people in this story. So if you haven't, I'll give you the chance to go back and check those out. Three, two, one. If you're here, I assume you're good, so let's go. If you didn't know, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, y'all. Language is clean, content is not. All my sources for the whole series from episodes 11 to 14 and everything in between will be posted on my website, so you can fact check me if you want to. 
Finally, all errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's go. Let's get into it. Our story today begins with a song. In the middle of the 19th century, an American named Richard Henry Dana was serving as a sailor on a merchant ship. He and a bunch of other sailors from different countries gathered at San Diego, California, back when it was still a Mexican province. It's still part of Mexico. And they got to singing, probably because they were full of alcohol and cell phones hadn't been invented yet, so nobody was looking on Twitter or anything. You know, they had to actually interact. The European sailors sang all their national songs. The French sang La Marseillaise. The Germans sang Ach mein lieber Augustin. The Italians and Spaniards sang songs that Dana didn't know. Dana and his fellow Americans sang, of course, the Star Spangled Banner. The English sailors sang Rule Britannia. But the Scots didn't join them. The Scots sang their own song. They sang, Who Will Be King But Charlie? To spare you guys my singing, the chorus goes like this. Come through the heather, around him gather, you're all to welcome him early. Around him cling with all your kin, for who will be king but Charlie? Come through the heather, around him gather, come Ronald, come Donald, come all together, and crown your rightful lawful king, for who will be king but Charlie? A full century after the 45, a century after Prince Charles Edward Stuart landed in the Scottish Highlands, the Scots regarded him as a national hero, as their bonnie Prince Charlie. And to this day, Charles is one of the most visible heroes of Scottish lore. His name is in songs and stories and poems, inscribed on monuments and plaques and hanging over pubs. He's a symbol of Scottish independence and mythology. But he wasn't born in Scotland. Charles didn't die in Scotland. He spent just over a year of his life in Scotland. So why is he such a powerful figure long after his very brief time in his adopted country? Who is this dude? Why is he such a big deal? Why does he have his own soundtrack? So today, we'll talk about the Jacobite Rising of 1745, the last attempt to place the exiled Stuart dynasty back on the thrones of Britain. We're going to talk about Bonnie Prince Charlie, his landing in the Scottish Highlands, and the calling of the clans. We're going to follow them on the first great campaign of that rising to the Battle of Preston Pans, and leave Charlie on the verge of marching into England and achieving the Jacobite dream. And I will explain why it's important at the end of our story. You've hopefully heard part one, otherwise this ain't going to make much sense. Today's part two, next week is part three, and in part four, I'll tie it all together. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. So when these happen, it's time to pause, feed your gerbil, go outside, touch some grass, do the thing you need to do. So tune your bagpipes, don your kilt, and let's go on campaign. So where are we going, you say? Well, our tale today will center on the Scottish Highlands, but we're going to begin our story with Charlie. All roads today begin with Rome. 
We left off last week with the Stuart Court in exile, living off the generosity of the Pope. Though they were set up in the decadent Palazzo Muti and enjoyed the high society of Rome, James Francis Edward Stuart and his court struggled to maintain the pretense that they were the rightful rulers of Britain. As the decades wore on, the crown slipped further away from their grasp, and James III, the pretender, the man who would be king, slipped into acceptance and despair. The Jacobite cause was at its lowest point yet. It was in this hopeless context that Charles Edward Stuart was born on December 31, 1720, to James's new wife, Polish Princess Maria Clementina Sobieska. His birth was observed by about 100 members of the Jacobite court and Roman high society because YouTube hadn't been invented and I guess this was the next best thing. Still, poor Maria though, imagine 100 random people crowding around your bed as you're giving birth. That must induce some anxiety. But they crowded around because Charles was the hope of the Jacobite cause, the future of the House of Stuart. So let's finally meet this guy, right? The young prince who is going to be the most important figure of the next three episodes and the future of Scottish legend. Who is Charles Edward Stuart? Charles grew up in the pampered luxury of Rome, the prince and supposed future ruler of a country he had never seen. His mother Maria was a Polish princess whose romantic spirit and freewheeling, you know, ideal idealism did not jibe with her depressed, moody, religious husband. Their marriage was troubled, especially when it came to their son's education and upbringing. Both parents loved their son and thought they knew what was best for him. But the rift between James and Maria, including a physical separation several years into their marriage, meant that Charles and later his younger brother Henry grew up in a broken home. Despite their bitter arguments and separation, when Maria Clementina died in 1735, when Charlie was 15, James would spend every morning the rest of his life praying beside her tomb. The Stuart men had always had kind of similar personalities, brooding, melancholy, religious, somehow both indecisive and stubborn. The biggest trait they shared was a kind of like chronic defeatism. They, they'd, already, they'd given up as soon as they were born. James Francis Edward Stuart spent the 1720s and 1730s in Rome, holding court, continuing to plot and scheme to return to the throne, but most people could tell he just didn't have his heart in it anymore. He had suffered miserable failure after miserable failure, and his spirit was crushed. He spent most of his time alone, praying, apparently accepting that he would die in exile. But Charles was the odd one out, the exception to the Stuart rule. He was just different, so much more alive than his father or his grandfather or his great uncle or any of them. Charlie was tall, redheaded, athletic, charming and handsome, full of energy, always on the move, ambitious and courageous and determined. He just had a way about him. He was one of those people, a vivid personality that like cast a spell on other people. When people describe Charles, it sounds like they're describing a movie star or a great politician or a legendary football coach, someone that makes you feel bigger when you fight beside them. He was magnetic. Now you're going, wow, James, really like this guy. You make it sound like he's perfect. Oh, no, 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 no. Charlie definitely had his flaws. When the magic wore off, Charles could be abrasive, stubborn, downright rude, didn't like to take advice, hated taking advice, and he could be extremely arrogant when it came to asserting what he viewed as his royal rights, his royal prerogative. 
He was rash, some would say reckless, and took risks a lot of the time that gambled the lives of his men and his cause. Okay, Charles is a very controversial figure. There are lots of different portrayals of him from the last three centuries. Some of them treat him like he walks on water, like he's basically Jesus. Some make him out to be a naive, stupid boy who got a bunch of people killed. Spoiler alert. Some make him out to be an outright villain. I'll let you decide. But I have my own opinion, of course. Charlie's most important relationship was with his father. James III was always loving and affectionate, but from a very early age, there was a tension between the old pretender and his son and heir, the young pretender. They were just too different. As Charles grew older, he would come to resent his father's caution, defeatism, and passivity. He gradually lost respect, even if he never really lost love, for the man he would try to return to the throne. Even though James adored Carluccio, as he called him, and was always kind and patient with his eldest son, Charles rejected what he saw as his father's weakness. This was the core element to Charlie's personality, the need for action. If you remember from last week, the Stuart cause failed time and again because someone chickened out at the last minute every time. James II fled London in 1688, then fled Ireland in 1690. The Earl of Mar hesitated at Sheriff Muir in 1715. James III fled Scotland in 1716. All those plots that never panned out because someone chickened out. So you can't blame Charlie for believing that the one thing the Jacobite cause had always lacked was the guts, the drive, the willingness to make the leap, take the shot, take the chance. Maybe a little recklessness was exactly what the cause needed. This would be Charlie's dominant trait, and I'm going to say this again. When in doubt, do something. Anything. Just take action. But for most of Charlie's early life, there wasn't much opportunity to do anything for the Jacobite cause. Let's pan away from Rome. Zoom out. Let's go to Britain. During this period, the 1720s to early 1740s, Britain was dominated by the Whig Party regime of Sir Robert Walpole. Walpole was a master politician who was often called the first real prime minister of Great Britain. He was the man from 1721 to 1742. Since both George I and his son George II didn't give a crap about Britain, still liked their country of Hanover more, their home country. This left the British prime minister free to do whatever he wanted with very little interference. No one was looking over his shoulder. This also allowed Parliament to cement itself as the dominant force in government. Walpole's policies emphasized, number one, economic growth. Number two, political stability. Number three, staying out of war. Staying out of war with other European powers, especially France. Peace and prosperity. That was Walpole's slogan. Walpole came to embody both the best and worst parts of the new order. I feel like last week I explained a lot about why someone might be a Jacobite, but less about why someone might support the Glorious Revolution, the New Order, the Whig Party. Well, if you're interested in economic growth, scientific progress, global trade, and military strength, you'd fit right in. The Whig Party was the party of the Enlightenment, the middle class, the bankers and merchants and lawyers and professors and military officers. It was the party of common sense, of order and stability, and most of all, good, decent Protestantism. But Walpole was not universally popular. The tricks his regime used to stay in power ended up being linked with corruption, 
decadence and rich elites controlling the government. Many nobles resented the power the new middle class had in the halls of parliament. Ugh, look at these uh, nouveau riches coming up and taking over. The Tories, the opposition to the Whigs, the opposition party, were barred from power as long as Walpole remained in charge. For any servant of the new order, of course, fighting Jacobitism was a big priority. You gotta keep the Jacobites out of power. But Walpole often confused fighting the Jacobites with fighting the Tories. Most Tories weren't Jacobites, but Walpole never let the facts get in the way of good propaganda. In 1722, for instance, British spies uncovered a Jacobite conspiracy to kidnap the royal family. Several Tories were involved in this thing, which is called the Atterbury Plot, but that gave Walpole all the ammo he needed to paint every single Tory as a Jacobite. This had the effect of locking the Tories out of power for years, but also drove many of them into the arms of the Jacobites. Basically, I got accused of being a Jacobite and I got, you know, my reputation is ruined. Might as well just be a Jacobite. But things were improving, even in Scotland. Though the act of union was still resented, most people had learned to live with it. Scotland's economy began to take off in the 1720s and 1730s, especially in the Presbyterian lowlands. The port of Glasgow became one of the main import and export centers for trade with the Americas, and soon it was the most Whig city, probably the most staunchly pro-New Order city in all of Britain. While there were peeps of Jacobitism here and there, and many Jacobites continued to write to and visit the Stuart Court in Rome, there was no real action. The Jacobites didn't really do anything for almost two decades. The point of all this is that to most people looking at Britain, it seemed like Jacobitism was a dead letter, that it was irrelevant. The UK was quiet and prosperous, no hint of rebellion. The Hanoverian dynasty was secure. The death of George I and the coronation of his son George II, easy, went off without a peep. No one even raised a protest. Even the Highland clan chiefs seemed to be cooling off and, okay, we'll work with the new regime. The Jacobite court continued to plot and scheme, but with James's understandable pessimism, no major power supporting them, and good economic times in England and Scotland, there seemed to be no real opportunity for the Jacobites to turn the tide of history. It seemed like their moment had passed. But they were all deceived. Tensions were rising just beneath the surface. British trade dominance threatened the French and Spanish economies, and there were rumors of war. Anger at the Walpole government's corruption and the Tories' frustration at being locked out of power continued to rise. Many Scots still wanted their country to be independent. The Scottish Episcopalians still refused to accept the new order. And the Highland clan chiefs were waking up to the fact that the clan system was dying. And if they didn't act, it might already be too late. The ingredients were all there. They just needed a spark. There were three sparks. The first was war. Starting in 1739, trade disputes between Britain and Spain resulted in those two countries going to war. And this conflict sort of merged into a much larger war between the alliance of France, Spain, and Prussia versus Britain, the Netherlands, and Austria. This war is called the War of the Austrian Succession. You don't need to know that much about it for this story. It's a big, long, complicated war that takes place all over the world. You just need to know there's a big war going on in Europe throughout this story. Moving on. The second spark 
was the downfall of Walpole. He continued to promote his policy of peace and prosperity, so he had tried to keep from going to war with Spain. But he was fighting the tide of public opinion, most of his political allies turned against him. And in 1742, Robert Walpole was forced to retire from prime minister. He'd kept a lid on everything for 22 years, and now he was gone. He left behind a very disorganized government with no real leader, just as it was about to enter the greatest crisis in its history. The third spark was France. The French were under pressure from Great Britain, and that meant that it was time to bust out old reliable. Louis XV was going to haul the Stuarts in from exile, give them a good dust-off, and use them as a boogeyman to scare England, which was their, the French favorite French thing to do whenever they were at war with England, right? So in 1743, France began to prepare an invasion force to invade Britain, and it was going to be led by their greatest general, the Marshal Maurice de Saxe. They needed just one ingredient, a Stuart. Just curious. Think real hard. Can you think of any eager young men who might be willing and able to help the French restore the Stuart dynasty? I can think of one. Now, James was not prepared to join the invasion. He was old and tired and probably just couldn't get his hopes up after so many disappointments. But Prince Charles was ready. He was 22 years old, a young buck, full of enthusiasm and all hopped up on dreams of glory. So in November 1743, Charles slipped north to France in disguise, ready to join the invasion and fulfill his destiny. He got to Paris in January 1744, ready to do this thing. Let's go. Let's restore my family to the throne. But like so many Jacobite projects, the invasion was a dismal failure. British intelligence had already learned about the French plans. When the French tried to sail, they ran into the Royal Navy and a huge storm. And then Marshal Saxe told Charlie, hey, hey guy, expedition's canceled. Sorry, you came all the way up here. Maybe next couple years, next decade, who knows? The French abandoned the entire plan to focus their attention on the European war. It seemed like the Stuarts' moment had come and gone yet again. See, this was the point where Charles's grandfather, or his father, would probably just shrug, eh, better luck next time, and gone home. But Charles was not his father or his grandfather. When in doubt, do something. Despite the French failure, Charlie stayed in Paris. He made the rounds with the extended Jacobite community in exile. He put pressure on the French court, sent messages to Jacobites in England and Scotland like, how much support can I expect? How popular is the government? Which Highland clans can I count on? Who would don the white cockade? And he got mixed answers. Jacobites in exile tended to tell him, oh yeah, the whole country will rise up if you land. But people who had actually been to Scotland or England in the last couple years were much more cautious. When Charlie got in touch with the clan chiefs and the lowland nobles, their message was pretty clear. They would be willing to rise up if Charles came with French troops, guns, and money. If he didn't, it was best if he didn't come at all. In September 1744, they sent a very clear message. Do not come to Scotland unless you have French troops with you. Otherwise, this would just end up like the 15 or the 19, a complete failure. The English Jacobites, the ones in England, were even more cautious, and this became the big sticking point for the French. The French would only agree to a new invasion if the English Jacobites could guarantee an uprising. 
and the English Jacobites would only guarantee an uprising if the French had already landed. <laughs> so good luck squaring that circle. But as Charlie grew more frustrated, the war continued elsewhere. In May 1745, the British and their allies met the French army in a big battle at Fontenoy in modern Belgium. Now, this is an enormous battle. I'm only covering it to give some context to what else is going to happen today. But this is a big decisive battle. It's important for a bunch of other reasons. Moving on. The French were led by the brilliant Maurice de Saxe, while the Allies were led by George II's son, William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland. Now, we're not going to talk much about Cumberland right now, but he's going to be really important starting next week because Cumberland is ultimately going to be Charlie's nemesis and the general who will confront the Jacobite army at Culloden. So just make a mental note here. But the Battle of Fontenoy was a big, dramatic confrontation. The battle surged back and forth, and with the Irish Brigade, the exiled Jacobites known as the Wild Geese, playing a key role in stopping the British attack. In the end, Marshal Saxe defeated the Allied army, and the tide of the war turned in France's favor. So despite all the people telling him not to do anything rash, and definitely not to come to Scotland without a promise of French support, Charlie saw his chance. The majority of the British army was in Europe, fighting the French. Britain was wide open. There were plenty of Jacobites who had promised that they would rise up if need be. Finally, Charlie just believed it was now or never. When in doubt, do something. The Stuart dynasty needed someone willing to take chances, to believe in their destiny and their right to rule, to make that leap over the edge into the darkness. So on June 22nd, 1745, Prince Charles Edward Stuart set sail on a sleek little French privateer called the Dutey. The Dutey was accompanied by a captured British vessel, the Elizabeth, which carried a store of guns and money for the potential rebellion, along with 700 troops of the Irish Brigade. Now, Charlie sent out several letters before he set sail. One was for King Louis. After vainly trying all means of reaching your majesty, in the hope of obtaining from your generosity the necessary help to enable me to play a part worthy of my birth, I have made up my mind to make myself known by my actions and undertake alone a project which some small aid would make certain of success. I venture to hope that your majesty will not refuse me such aid. Charlie wrote a different letter to his father, who would be shocked and horrified to learn that his beloved Carluccio had gone off on such a dangerous mission alone. Charlie assured James that he knew what he was doing and he was determined to succeed. He made a personal argument to his father. Your majesty cannot disapprove a son's following the example of his father. You yourself did the like in the year 15, but the circumstances now are indeed very different. By being much more encouraging, there being a certainty of succeeding with the least help. Granted, both of these letters were written really badly because Charles was, above all, a terrible speller. But the young prince had set sail with no one else's approval. The king didn't tell him to. His dad didn't tell him to. He was going it alone. But on the way to Scotland, Stuart Luck struck once again. Charlie's tiny little flotilla was attacked by a British warship, and the Elizabeth was damaged and forced to return to France. That left Charlie on his tiny little boat with only seven loyal companions and a few guns 
to sail for the Scottish Highlands. Again, one more opportunity to turn back. With no troops and very limited supplies, yeah, you couldn't have blamed him. But Charles forged ahead, aiming for Scotland. And I mean, guys, this, this is pretty gutsy. Kind of reckless, honestly. After all, Charlie carried this plan out when there's no evidence of widespread support for his cause. His mission was puny, downright tiny. You could even argue, as people did then and later, that he was putting every Jacobite in Britain at risk by insisting on this crazy plan. Or so it seemed. Every single Jacobite plot and rising had been foiled in advance and come to grief because of the British spy network. But it was Charlie's very lack of planning, the very small size of the adventure, the very you know shoestring nature of the whole thing, that caused the British spy network to miss his mission. He had slipped past the Royal Navy and the British Intelligence Service. It would take weeks for the government to realize what he planned, and when they did realize, it would be too late. On July 23rd, 1745, Prince Charles Edward Stuart landed on the shores of Scotland, on the small island of Eriskay on the outer fringes of the Western Isles. The weather was choppy, bad, bad weather, and sheets of driving rain welcomed the prince to Britain. Hey, welcome to Scotland, it's raining, get used to this. Nevertheless, he was bouncy and full of energy. He was finally on his adventure to achieve his destiny, and immediately someone burst his bubble. Charlie had landed in the lands of the Catholic McDonald's of Clan Ranald, and he was visited the next morning by Alexander MacDonald of Boysdale. Alexander had a message from several of the major clan chiefs of the Western Isles. The message was that if he came without troops, that there was nothing to be expected from the country, that not a soul would join with them, and that he should go back and wait for a more favorable occasion. Basically, just to re-emphasize, dude, we told you, if you didn't bring troops, we don't want you here. And in their defense, they had made this very clear. But Charlie was dead set on his destiny. So when Boysdale told him to turn around and go home, he replied, I am come home, sir, and I will entertain no notion at all of returning to that place from whence I came, for I am persuaded my faithful Highlanders will stand by me. After Boysdale left, Charlie and his followers had a final discussion. They had no army, a handful of weapons, very little money. Everyone was telling him to leave. They had no soldiers, they had no army. This was the last chance to turn back, and many people would have. It would have made sense. No one would have blamed him. But the next day, the Dutei set sail for the coast of the Scottish mainland. They landed near the area called Moidert and Charlie came ashore with his seven original companions, known forever after as the Seven Men of Moidert. Against all odds, against all advice, against common sense itself, the young pretender had come. The news from Moidert went out across the land. Prince Charles had landed. Ready or not, and most people were not, the 45 had begun. So now we're knee-deep 
in the year 1745. When is this exactly? What's going on? Well, let's see. In England, Samuel Johnson is beginning to write his famous Dictionary of the English Language. John Wesley is leading a religious revival that will come to be known as the Methodist Movement. In Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin is beginning to study electricity. In Virginia, the 13-year-old George Washington is struggling to find his place in the world. And Johann Sebastian Bach is conducting music in Germany. The mercury thermometer was invented a few years ago. Women are wearing big hoop skirts and men are wearing white wigs. Hope all that helps. Charles landed on the Scottish coast at Moidert on July 25th, 1745. Now, what was he trying to accomplish, really? He had come to the Highlands to raise an army that would fight for his cause. But the hard part would be persuading the chiefs. See, this would be the main problem all over Britain throughout the uprising. After so many failed uprisings, no one wanted to launch another one unless they were sure of support from an outside power, namely France. But as we know, the French invasion of 1744 had failed and been canceled. So what did Charles think he was doing? Keep in mind here that Charlie is all of 24 years old. He's a kid, full of energy, short on the wisdom that comes with age. But Charlie had the talent not of a general or a king, but of a revolutionary, which was what he was, wasn't he? If this was the 20th century, he'd probably be like Che Guevara or Mao Zedong than anyone else. He was trying to start a movement from nothing and turn it into something. Charles believed that if he, if he could produce a good, solid uprising in the Highlands and show the French court, hey, we stand a chance, then they would finally come around to helping him. It was the same logic the Americans used in the American Revolution. Hey, if we start put up enough of a fight against Britain, maybe France will come help us. But would the clans come out? Well, they hadn't exactly rolled out the welcome wagon, had they? When Charlie landed, he got the same message. Dude, if you don't have a French invasion force with you, go back where you came from. But when he didn't turn back, this put the chiefs on the spot. It forced them to make a decision. Which, would they come out or stay at home? Who would fight for Charlie? Keep in mind, Charlie had shown up with, like, seven dudes. Four Irishmen, two Scots, one Englishman. Two of these guys are pretty important. The first was John Murray, Marquis of Tullibardine, an aged Jacobite who had been one of the leaders of the 19. The Murray family carried a lot of weight in Jacobite circles in the Scottish Lowlands. The other was Colonel John William O'Sullivan, an Irish Jacobite exile who had served as an officer in the French army. O'Sullivan would be Charlie's main staff officer, his chief of staff, throughout the campaign. But still, seven dudes in a little ship. Imagine, like, today, seven random guys in an old minivan show up at the governor of Alabama's house and say, hey, we want to restart the Confederacy. What, even if you want to, what are you going to do with that? Keep in mind, a Highland Uprising wasn't a new idea. It was an old idea that had been tried and failed. And that's always scarier than a new idea. How did Charles know that this wouldn't just end up like 1715 and 1719? Charlie made an early move that won him a lot of respect. After unloading the small but precious cargo of weapons and money that the Duteil carried, he sent it back to France. He sent his only way home back to France. By taking this risky step, he was making sure everyone knew that he was not going to be running away, not like his grandfather or his father. He had come to win. 
But still, many clan chiefs that Charlie thought he could count on said no. Among them, Norman MacLeod of Dunvegan and Alexander MacDonald of Sleet, the two most powerful chiefs on the Isle of Skye. They were supposed to be diehard Jacobites, and Charlie was confused when they didn't join him. They said no. He's like, you guys are supposed to be some of the biggest ones. So he was having trouble raising any support at all. At one point, Charlie asked a small conference of local leaders if none of them would join him, and they just sat there, just looked at him. But then, young Ronald McDonald shifted and gripped his sword, and he said, I will, I will. Though no other man in the Highlands should draw a sword, I am ready to die for you. The other McDonald's, embarrassed by this young man's courage, declared their support on the spot. But there was one person Charles really had to persuade. Donald Cameron of Lochiel, chief of Clan Cameron. Lochiel was one of the biggest and most important Jacobite chiefs of the Western Highlands. He had a lot of influence with the other smaller clans. Donald Cameron was relatively modern for a chief. He was an agricultural improver and innovator. He was putting a lot of new experiments into his clan lands. But the Camerons were under pressure from Clan Campbell to the south, and they had serious financial difficulties. Lochiel had an emotional attachment to Jacobitism. He was loyal to the Stuarts, but would he be prepared to risk everything for the cause? Now, there are several different accounts of Lochiel's meeting with Charles. The first is that Lochiel fell to pieces on meeting his beloved prince and vowed to follow him. Now that's the romantic, mythical version. Second version is more likely. Lochiel tried to tell Charlie to go home, again, but when the prince refused, again, Lochiel agreed, okay, I'll rise up, but only if I'm compensated for my lands and receive a job with the French if this whole thing goes south. To me? That sounds pretty legitimate. That sounds pretty realistic. That sounds like the clan chiefs of history instead of the clan chiefs of legend. In fact, every single Highland chief would find some way to straddle the line, to tow, to stay on uh, both sides when it came to supporting the 45. Maybe they sent out a son to lead the clan regiment so they could stay home and claim I didn't have anything to do with it. Maybe they passed their lands to a close relative so it stayed within the family. Maybe they allowed volunteers, quote-unquote volunteers, to go out and fight while they stayed behind and said, oh, I didn't have anything to do with it. So this later myth of the loyal clan chiefs rallying to the Bonnie Prince was a myth. They were very, very cautious and self-interested, always trying to gain plausible deniability. And that was what made bringing them out so difficult. In the meantime, while all this was going on, the British spy network had gotten word that Charles had vanished from France. And where did he go? Was he in England, Scotland, Ireland? Had he gone to join an invasion force in Spain or northern France? Rumors were everywhere, but no one found out for certain that the spies were hunting for Charles. But one man had the answer. This was, of course, Scotland's Lord President of the Court of Session, Duncan Forbes. If you remember him, he's the anti-Jacobite mastermind who had his web wrapped around all the Highland chiefs through connections, networking, and not a little blackmail. The Lord President was just wrapping up a session in Edinburgh when he received a letter from Norman MacLeod on August 9th. MacLeod was one of those supposedly Jacobite chiefs who hadn't joined Charlie, and he told Duncan Forbes that Charlie had definitely landed and was trying to raise an army. 
If you listen to my short round this past Friday about the Highland clans, you'll remember that Forbes had dirt, had blackmail material on McLeod, and was forcing him to back the government. Forbes was nervous. His spiderweb had been vibrating. Something was up in the Highlands. The clans were restless. The chiefs were suddenly very nervous about something. But now Forbes knew why. He sent the information about the prince down to London and started making contact with the loyal clan chiefs to get them on the government's side. Then he set off for his mansion, Culloden House, near Inverness, where he could control events. There was not a moment to lose. The young pretender had landed. Charles proclaimed that any loyal clan should rally at Glenfinnan on August 19th. That's the place where they're going to meet up. He knew that this would determine whether there would be any uprising at all. What if no one showed up? What if this whole thing was a misfire before it even began? All these thoughts had to run through his mind as he and his small following of McDonald's marched to Glenfinnan. August 19th came, and hour by hour Charlie waited on the plain of Glenfinnan. The mountains rose on three sides, and Loch Shiel stretched out to the south, blue in the sun. But all this beauty only served to highlight the silence. Then, at around 3 p.m., a sound came in from the east. And as they listened, the sound became clearer. It was bagpipes. A lot of bagpipes. Over the hills came 800 fighting men of the Cameron clan, Donald Cameron of Lochiel at their head. It was so dramatic that any screenwriter would be embarrassed. It was just too cheesy. Soon Jenny Cameron brought 300 more of her clan from Glen Desary. Then the McDonald's of Keppoch brought 350 more. The fiery crosses had gone out, and the clans had come. Charlie had to be relieved. I'm sure that somewhere in his head, he doubted whether anyone would show up. After all, everyone had told him not to come, that this was a reckless mission, that no one would join him. And they'd been wrong. The Marquis of Tullibardine unfurled the banner, a simple white square on a red background, the banner of the Jacobites. And the Irish Colonel O'Sullivan was appointed Adjutant General of the new Jacobite army. Then Charles read a long and boring declaration from his father, which was probably in French, but the clans cheered anyway, because, sure, they had to. Even as they cheered, though, some other Highlanders showed up with prisoners. Some fighters from the MacDonald clan, hearing of Charlie's Landing, had gone ahead and ambushed two companies of redcoats near Fort Augustus on August 16th. This was the first military action of the 45. These redcoats were part of the Royal Scots Regiment, you know, a Scottish unit. So yeah, the 45 began with Scots attacking Scots, but who cared? They were redcoats. Now Charlie had an army. He had come alone with barely a sword or a coin, but he had come. And through the strength of his personality and his belief in his destiny, he had done something like a miracle. The chiefs had, despite their good sense, their better judgment, their knowledge that this was a bad idea, they'd sent out the fiery cross. The clans had come out. Not all of them, not nearly as many as they wanted, but enough to start with. They didn't have a lot of weapons or money, but they were unified behind their chiefs and showed enthusiasm for this young prince who had just gotten here last month. This, well, this was a start. 
Charlie recognized that he was, you know, a kid from Rome who had literally never been to Scotland before, so he played up the role of, you know, I'm a Scottish prince, look at me. He began to dress like a Highlander in kilts and tartan. He began to learn some Gaelic and even start to play the bagpipes very badly. Like any good politician, he knew how to pander to his base. But Charles wasn't just a politician. He was a revolutionary. And now he had an army, he had the momentum, and it was only a matter of time before the government did something about it. With the revolutionary's mindset and his personal preference for decisive action, Charlie realized that he needed to strike while the iron was hot. He couldn't wait for reinforcements. He couldn't wait to gather more clans. He needed to move fast. After a council of war, Charlie and the small Highland army marched southeast for the passes of the lower Highlands. Of course, we've been following Charlie, but there was another side to the story. There is the government side. What's going on in London while Charlie is calling out the clans to his cause? By early August, London knew that Charlie had landed and that he was raising an army. Now, both because of their lack of information and their own biases, most ministers didn't take this very seriously. The Jacobites had fallen on their faces every time they tried to launch an uprising, after all, and this had lulled the Hanoverian dynasty and the not-so-new order into a false sense of security. There were a few Jacobites, but they were poorly trained, ill-equipped, and they apparently had no real French backing. How dangerous could they be? But the danger was bigger than they thought. The British army was 35,000 men strong in 1745 but only 6,000 of those men were in Britain itself. The other 29,000 were either in Ireland or mostly in Europe fighting the French. Charlie had predicted the British would be too distracted to stop him, and that seemed to be coming true. He had caught the Hanoverian government with its pants down. Only a small group of British soldiers were available to stop him. The man on the spot in Scotland was Lieutenant General Sir John Cope. Cope was sort of competent. He was just an average British general, average all around, not a huge idiot, not a huge hero. He had 3,800 men, which sounds like a lot, but they were scattered all across Scotland in tiny little detachments, guarding forts, guarding barracks, up in this city, up in this city. With a whole handful of local leaders joining the Jacobites, Cope wasn't sure who he could trust. But he knew he could trust Duncan Forbes, who was getting to work securing the loyalty of the other clan chiefs. By the time Charlie assembled his clans at Glenfinnan, Forbes had already confirmed that Clan Grant, Clan Mackay, Clan Monroe, and Clan Sutherland were all staying loyal. He also coordinated with a member of the loyal Clan Campbell, John Campbell, 4th Earl of Loudoun, to raise Highland units to fight the rebellion. There was one big problem with this strategy of raising loyal Highlanders to fight Charlie's Highlanders. Way back in 1725, the British government had passed the Disarming Act, forcing the clans to give up many of their weapons. Unfortunately for the government, only the law-abiding clans that were allied with them had followed this law. The rebellious clans all kept their weapons and were now, of course, using them. So now, when the government needed to raise loyal clans, they had to scrounge up enough weapons to arm them. Um, good job, guys. Maybe if you rely on this system, maybe keep guns in the hands of the clans that support you. You know, so they can do that. So when General Cope prepared to march into the Highlands and fight Charlie, 
At short notice, he could only scrape up about 1,400 men. But with London breathing down his neck, General Cope sighed, you know, pulled up his shirt sleeves. All right, let's go knock some heads. Time to crush this uprising before it gets any worse. So on August 20th, the day after Charlie rallied the clans at Glenfinnan, Sir John Cope and his tiny British army set out up the military road into the Highlands. Remember that General George Wade, a few decades back, had built the military roads as a way of pushing government control over the rebellious Highlands. You can move an army quickly through the Highlands, you can, you can destroy a rebellion. The problem with building roads in a rebellious country, though, is that the rebels can use them too. And Charlie was using the military road to push his little Highland army as fast as possible to the critical mountain pass of Corrieric. His plan was to confront and defeat the British forces in Scotland as soon as possible. But as Cope and his little army climbed the mountains toward Corrieric, he started to get nervous. His spies told him that Charlie might have as many as 2,000 clansmen, which greatly outnumbered his army, and that they'd already taken the mountain pass. They were up there, waiting for him. He probably had visions in his head of the Battle of Killacranky back in 1689, when a Highland force under the Viscount Dundee had trashed a British force in a very similar situation. He was, you know, they were preparing to use the pass as an ambush site, like what the Afghans would do to the British in 1842. So Cope looked at this and was like, no, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to assault a mountain pass defended by crazy Highlanders. Now, Cope could have retreated back to Stirling and Edinburgh, which would have kept his army between Charlie and the main cities of the lowlands and the main routes out of the highlands. Instead, he didn't want this to look like a retreat. So option A, retreat back to the lowlands. Option B, fight Charlie. Cope took option C and led his troops north to the safety of Inverness. Basically, they played chicken. Charlie and Cope played chicken. Cope chickened out and ran to the side. But when Cope arrived in Inverness, he met up with Duncan Forbes, who basically said, dude, what the heck? You just let that brat and his little mob into the lowlands. And you can imagine Cope realizing just how bad he messed up. Like, oh, oh, crap. But it was too late. Charles's plan had been to go gunning for a fight with the British. But when Cope got out of his way, Charlie saw his opening and he took it. His army raced down the military road, picking up more clans as they went, and exploded into the lowlands like a tidal wave. The Jacobites were out of the highlands and had penetrated into Scottish Episcopalian territory, the epicenter of Jacobite support. The 45 was about to hit the big leagues. On September 4th, 1745, Charles and his highland army entered the lowland city of Perth. The prince rode into the city in full Highland costume to the cheering of the locals. The white cockade was everywhere, on the bosoms of women and the caps of men. People came from all around to see the foreign prince, and more clans came rushing in to join the rising of the 45. It's kind of amazing how people treated Charlie's arrival into Scotland, and this really starts to show up when he arrives in Perth. Man, there are stories, guys. There are historical plaques everywhere. You ever seen the George Washington slept here signs in like Virginia and South Carolina? Oh, George Washington cut his toenails in that tree stump over there. Well, it's like that for Charlie all over Scotland. The first place he landed on Eriskay to known today as the Prince's Strand. There are seven trees planted at Moidert for the seven men of Moidert. 
there's a white rose bush outside this house called Fassifern, and everybody says, oh, Charlie planted that rose bush. There's a place he sat to eat for lunch for lunch one day, and that place, that this this just random field is now called Prince Charlie's Table. There's an iron gate near some this, this Scottish mansion, and when Charlie arrived, its owner locked the gate and said, the gate will never be open until the Stuarts return to the throne. And spoiler alert, it is still locked today. Here's what one Scottish gentleman wrote about Charlie's entry into Perth. He marches the whole day on foot, and every river they have to cross, he's the first man that leaps into it. He dines with his soldiers in the open field. The pretender makes himself greatly popular. He is dressed in a highland coat of fine silk tartan, red velvet breeches, and a blue velvet bonnet with gold lace round it. He is about six foot, walks well and straight, and speaks the English or broad Scots very well. But then there was his effect on women. One young lady saw Charlie enter Perth, and she wrote this. Oh, had you beheld my beloved hero, you must confess him a gift from heaven. But then, beside his outward appearance, which is absolutely the best figure I ever saw, such vivacity, such piercing wit, woven with a clear judgment and an active genius. In short, madam, he is the top of perfection and heaven's darling. Old Bonnie Prince Thirst Trap over here was the instant crush of many, many women, even those who supported the government. So yeah, people acted like he was a rock star, a celebrity. It was the event of their lives, the most exciting thing that may have ever happened to them. The Stuart Prince had come back to save them from something. Who, who knew what? But God knew it was something. But back to business. While in Perth, Charlie began to put his movement on some sort of firm footing. Most of all, he needed cash. At one point, he held up a single coin to his followers and told them, yeah, this is my entire treasury. We need money. He also needed to gather more men, and though more were coming in all the time, some of the Highland clans were still sitting on the fence waiting to see which way the wind blew. As the Jacobites raised money through uh, cool and not-so-cool means, they put out feelers to the other clans, and Charlie sent messages to France and the English Jacobites, like, hey, the time is here, come help me. But the Northeast Lowlands were hardcore Episcopalian country, and as I have hinted several times, these were the Jacobites' most hardcore supporters by a long shot. There was something like a religious revival in Northeast Scotland in the years leading up to 1745, with random Jacobite preachers wandering around, proclaiming the imminent arrival of the true king, God's king, the deliverer and the savior of Scotland and the Episcopalian faith. When they said, he is coming, they didn't mean Jesus. They meant Charles. And Charlie had come. Soon hundreds of lowlanders were joining the Jacobite army. And among them were two men we need to introduce, because they will be Charlie's top generals in the campaigns to come. The first was James Drummond, Duke of Perth. Perth was a longtime Jacobite supporter, one of those guys who had been writing to James and Charles this whole time, talking about Scotland and the possibility of an uprising. Perth was, unusually even for the Jacobites, a Scottish Catholic, a charismatic and intelligent nobleman of 32, with very little military experience, but a lot of influence. He was very brave and very popular with the soldiers. The second man was Lord George Murray who is going to be one of the most important figures in our story, alongside Charles himself. Lord George Murray was 51 years old, 
the Marquis of Tullibardine's younger brother, an experienced soldier who had fought for the Jacobites in the 15 and the 19. But ever since then, he had played nice with the new order. He'd been pardoned by the king, he'd had numerous government posts, and he was supposed to actually be John Cope's political consultant in the campaign. But Lord George Murray surprised everyone, government and Jacobite, when he came out in support of Charles and raised the men of Athol for the Jacobite cause. Many of Charlie's closest supporters and confidants, the Irishmen especially, were suspicious of Murray and believed that he might be a traitor. Lord George was no traitor. In fact, Lord George Murray would end up being the best general the Jacobite cause ever had. He was an excellent tactician, a master of the 18th century military art. Murray came to be seen by most of the Scottish clan chiefs and officers as their main advocate and their figurehead, the, the general that they would all follow. He was just naturally talented in all those discipline and tactics and marching, all those areas where Charlie, who was the heart and soul of the uprising, was weak and inexperienced. It would make sense that these two men would make an excellent command team. The big problem was that Charles and his best general were like oil and water. Lord George Murray was aloof, disciplined, and stern, the polar opposite of the warm, charismatic, romantic prince. George thought secretly that Charles was a reckless adventurer who stood a good chance of getting them all killed, while Charles thought that George was a cautious old fossil whose loyalties were in doubt. Despite being incredibly talented men who shared most of the same goals, Prince Charles and Lord George Murray just could not get along, and their relationship would only get worse. We're going to talk much more about that next week. Because that's in the future. Now, Charles realized that he didn't have a moment to lose. Word had reached that him that Sir John Cope was on the road again, marching south to try and secure Scotland's capital, Edinburgh, before the Jacobites could. Charlie held a council of war, and all the Scottish generals decided to march south and take Edinburgh as fast as possible. After all, when in doubt, do something. So on September 11th, 1745, without waiting for any more reinforcements, the Jacobites marched out of Perth. The two armies were heading for a collision. The first battle of the 45 was 10 days away. General Sir John Cope had screwed up, and he was trying to fix it. By letting Prince Charles and the Scottish Highland Army into the Lowlands, he had exposed all of loyal Scotland to attack, including the Scottish capital of Edinburgh. Leaving Duncan Forbes at Inverness to rally the Loyalist clans in the north, Cope ordered ships to meet him at Aberdeen on the eastern coast, and from there he would set sail for southern Scotland, hopefully slipping around the Jacobites by sea and reaching Edinburgh before them. The race was on. Charlie's small Jacobite army, mostly of Highlanders but now reinforced by lowland recruiting, marched south with Edinburgh in their crosshairs. The prize that awaited them, Edinburgh, Scotland's ancient capital, a small and cramped city of around 50,000 inhabitants known to its residents as Auld Reekie for its assortment of unpleasant smells. 
Yeah, so think of like the smell of a water treatment plant or one of those houses from the TV show Hoarders and realize that is every city in the 18th century. There were a few things standing in the Jacobites' path to Edinburgh. First was the fortress at Stirling along the Forth River, which was one of the most important strategic positions in Scotland, sitting in a choke point along the main north-south road between the Highlands and the Lowlands. The Jacobites had no artillery to take the fortress, and they were in a race anyway. So on September 14th, they bypassed the fortress by fording the river to the west. Though the prince's army took fire from the fort, this fire was useless at long range. They marched past with flags flying and bagpipes playing and continued their march towards Edinburgh. The second thing in their way was a few regiments of light dragoons under the command of Colonel James Gardiner. Gardiner's dragoons were highly inexperienced, below establishment strength, and poorly led. Gardiner himself was a decent officer, a deeply religious individual who could be compared to Stonewall Jackson in like his character and temperament, but the British cavalry in Scotland were just garbage units, and the 13th and 14th Dragoons would be among the worst. They didn't even try to stop the Jacobites from crossing the river, and on September 16th, when they ran into Lord George Murray's advance guard, it only took one shot to send the British horsemen running away screaming, through the streets of Edinburgh, which I'm sure inspired the people of Edinburgh to be very confident in their safety. Because Edinburgh was in panic at the idea of a foreign prince with a horde of barbarians approaching their lovely, stinky city. The locals tried to raise a militia, and plenty of enthusiastic volunteers signed up, including a bunch of local students. One of the volunteers was David Hume, later to be one of history's greatest philosophers and a hero of the Scottish Enlightenment. But the Edinburgh volunteers were a joke. The city's behavior was almost comedic in how hysterical and ineffective it was. Like people, you know, just think cartoon-like. People screaming their heads off, but totally unable to do anything about it. One city magistrate assembled a company of 100 recruits to go fight the Jacobite menace. And as he led them towards the city walls, this bunch of college kids and minimum wage workers suddenly looked at each other like, oh, oh, this is serious and they started to quietly slip out of the ranks and into nearby alleys or doorways. So by the time their leader actually got to the walls, he only had 20 men, and these guys looked around and said, nope, and ran right back down the street. I mean, would you stick around? Just after Charlie sent an ultimatum to the city of Edinburgh, saying, hey guys, surrender or we'll have to attack your city, the magistrates of the city, the city leaders, learned that the Cope's army was coming. They were on their way. So they were gonna stall for time. Hey, let's, let's slow things down a little bit. Let's send a delegation to discuss the terms of surrender and try to buy time for the British to come save us. But when this delegation was returning to the city that night, Chief Donald Cameron of Lochiel and the 900 men of the Cameron clan slipped in behind the delegation right through the open city gates. Any British soldiers left in the town retreated to the safety of the Edinburgh Castle, and the people woke up September 17th to find their city in the hands of the young pretender. Literally, people walked up, walked under the walls and said, hey, how's it going? And they looked over and there's a Highlander right there, like, sup? And that was how they found out their city had been taken overnight. The prince entered Edinburgh that morning at the head of his army. The Scottish capital was smoky and gray in the morning light, and stinky, of course, and all the people of Edinburgh turned out to see Bonnie Prince Charlie, the first time that nickname was used. Now, not everyone in Edinburgh was thrilled, 
Most of them probably weren't even Jacobites. Most of them were just out there because it was something new and interesting, like, hey, I haven't seen this before. But all accounts confirmed that Charlie's reception was riotous, ecstatic, full of cheering crowds and screaming women. They were all struck by the sight of the young prince, clad in his Highland uniform and beaming with excitement. To Charles, it was the culmination of all his efforts, his entire reason for existence. He was in the ancient capital of his ancestors. The Stuarts had come home. Lochiel and O'Sullivan proclaimed the Pretender, aka James III of England, as King James VIII of Scotland. While Charlie made his way to Holyrood Palace, the seat of Scottish kings, the house of Mary Queen of Scots and James I. Everyone gathered around as the Stuart Prince entered, realizing that this was a historic moment. He walked silently across the courtyard and entered the palace with an uneasy smile on his face, like he couldn't really believe it, this was happening. It was barely a month since he had called the clans at Glenfinnan, just two months after he'd landed in Scotland in the first place. Could this be real? Was this really happening? But at the very moment that Charles made his triumphant entry, John Cope was landing his army of about 2,500 men at Dunbar, 27 miles east of the city. The British were coming. It was time for the showdown. Sir John Cope was not confident. See, the British were at war with France, right? Remember that big war going on over in Europe that we haven't talked about much? In order to fight that war, they had stripped Scotland of all the best troops. This left Cope with the stay-behinds, the invalids, the regiments that weren't considered reliable enough to fight the French. This meant that despite your average British unit, average British regiment being a pretty decent unit, Cope's soldiers were basically the bottom of the barrel. To make it worse, he had pulled his army together from various corners of Scotland and they'd never trained or worked together before. To make it worse, Cope's artillery crews were garbage. He had been forced to man his small number of cannons with men pulled off of ships of the Royal Navy. And those guys didn't want to fight on land where they could get stabbed by some crazy Scottish redneck. And Cope's cavalry was the worst of the worst of the worst. Colonel James Gardner's two regiments of poorly disciplined dragoons had a reputation for running away for basically any reason and sometimes no reason at all, and had given ample evidence of this when they were panicked and ran away from the Jacobites as they approached Edinburgh. So with all this in mind, Cope decided to try to find a strong defensive position and let his enemy come to him. He set up near the small fishing village of Preston Pans, building a strong position with the sea to his north, a nasty marsh to his south, and a couple of villages and fences to his west. These obstacles would break up any Jacobite advance. It wouldn't give them room to deploy, and that would hopefully make up for the inexperience and poor condition of his soldiers. The two armies were about even in numbers, 2,500 men apiece, but Cope had artillery and cavalry on his side and Charlie didn't. Plus, they may not have been the best soldiers, but his men were professional soldiers. And with their volleys of musket fire, the Redcoats should make short work of this Highland rabble. Charles and the Jacobite army left Edinburgh on September 19th, and by the next day they could see Cope's army waiting for them in the distance. Lord George Murray had the army approach from the south, and Cope's Redcoats changed position to continue facing their opponents which meant that they now faced each other over this boggy marsh. 
but this this nasty boggy marsh between them still out of gunshot range the marsh was crisscrossed by all these walls and ditches and fences now charlie being charlie wanted to launch an immediate frontal attack you know when in doubt do something some of the jacobites went out to like test the marsh and test the ground to see if they could launch an attack across it but they came back and said no no, the, the ground is terrible. Any highland charge across this terrain would be a disaster, slowed down by obstacles and open to the enemy's cannon to musket fire. Cope's position was too strong to be attacked frontally. The Jacobite leaders started to get tense because the army's commanders had already started to argue, and this would only get worse as time went on. Charles was worried that Cope might try to slip past them to the west and race for Edinburgh, you know, try to sneaky sneak a march on them. So he told Colonel O'Sullivan to move some units to stand in their way. Lord George, on the other hand, was furious when he heard that Charlie was skipping the chain of command, and he burst into a rage over O'Sullivan's impudence, and Lord George threatened to resign. Not the last time he would do that. Charlie told him, dude, relax, and ordered the unit to come back. It was the first clash between the two men. It would not be the last. That night, Charles and his war leaders held a council. Murray, the best general of, the, of all of them, of course, had a solution to their problem. In the pre-dawn hours, overnight, they would march all the way around the enemy flank to the east, around the marsh, and attack from that unexpected direction in the enemy's rear. They would have to march early and fast to get around the marsh. But at midnight, a local farmer's boy named Robert Anderson came to Murray and said, Hey, I know a better way. Because see, Anderson liked to hunt and fish in those marshes, and there was a footpath that every, all the locals knew about, but that the British didn't. It would lead right behind Cope's army. O'Sullivan and Charles gave the necessary orders to march at 4 a.m. It was a bold plan, a daring plan. The kind of move that someone like Frederick the Great, Robert E. Lee, Erwin Rommel might pull off. The poorly armed, poorly trained Jacobites were going to launch a surprise attack at dawn to gain the advantage over the enemy. Even if Charlie had been responsible for raising and inspiring this rebellion, this shows how important Lord George was to the cause. If they'd listened to Charlie, the Jacobites would have launched a frontal attack over a swamp. They might have been slaughtered, probably would have been. Murray provided the military expertise to go with Charlie's inspirational leadership and revolutionary instincts. They would have made a great team if they didn't hate each other. At 4 a.m. on September 21st, 1745, the Highland force crept through the marshlands, completely bypassing the British position. The men in their tartans and bonnets with swords and muskets at the ready squished along the narrow path in the pre-dawn gloom. The men of Clan MacDonald led the way, with the Duke of Perth's Lowlanders, Clan Robertson, Clan Stewart of Appen, and Clan Cameron behind them, and Lord George's Athol Brigade at the rear. At one point, Charlie tried to jump over a ditch, but then he stumbled and fell in the mud. And despite some people, oh, that's a bad omen, the young prince got right back up and kept running, because he might have been raised in a palace, but he was willing to get his hands dirty. As soon as they were through the marshes, Charlie's army formed up in their battle line, with the Duke of Perth commanding the right and George Murray accompanied by Charles on the left. It was only a month after the clans had been called at Glenfinnan, but the Highlanders were ready for action. At the far right of the line was Clan MacDonald. In any European army ever since the ancient Greeks, 
The far right was the position of honor. And after Clan MacDonald's bravery in the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, King Robert the Bruce had pro proclaimed that they would always occupy the right. Just as they had for centuries, Clan MacDonald would hold the right at Preston Pans. As the sun rose, the Redcoats finally shook themselves awake, only to see that the enemy army had vanished. But to the east, beyond the rays of the rising sun, they saw the bushes moving, and then realized that those were the tartans of the rebel highlanders. John Cope was no idiot. He realized what had happened immediately and got his men up to change their position. The British got into a quick battle line, but the damage had been done. Though Cope tried to push his line into some sort of order, the surprise of the Highland maneuver and the lack of preparation had the British shook. They were shaken, and they, all their obstacles that had defended them from a Highland charge were gone. The troops were not psychologically prepared or well-positioned for what was about to happen. Charles's army advanced quickly, storming forward through the morning mist over the open fields near Preston Pans, hoping to attack before the British could gain their bearing. The Battle of Preston Pans began just as the sun was rising. As the Jacobites advanced, Cope's artillery fired, but with the inexperienced gunners already close to panicking and barely able to see through the fog, they fired high, their rounds just going right over the heads of the approaching enemy. The Jacobites didn't have guns to respond, but if your guns can't hit anything, they might as well not be there in the first place, right? The Highlanders broke out into a jog, ready to close with the enemy as fast as humanly possible. As the Duke of Perth's units on the right crashed across a freshly harvested cornfield, squinting in the early morning light, they ran right into the British dragoons of Colonel Gardiner. The sworn men of Clan MacDonald leveled their muskets and delivered a volley right into the British dragoons from several different angles. The British cavalry collapsed predictably like a wet paper bag, panicking and fleeing under the sudden onrush of the Highlanders. Colonel Gardiner died trying to rally his broken horsemen, in the process becoming the first fallen hero, the first martyr of the government cause. The artillery fired a couple more shots, but then the Navy crews finally lost their nerve, and they turned around and ran away as well. This left the British infantry alone to withstand the brunt of the attack. As the Highlanders rushed forward, the Redcoats raised a cheer. Then the Highland charge was unleashed. Here is what one observer said. The oncoming Highlanders raised a cheer of their own, and did not level their pieces until they were very near being always sure that their one fire should do execution, which they having done immediately threw down their guns and drawing their broadswords, rushed in upon them like a torrent and carried all before them. That's the Highland Charge. Get to point blank range, fire your musket, drop it, draw your sword, and chop chop. The Redcoats, still sleepy, still confused, scared, tired, were flanked on both sides by the Highland Charge. Chief Donald Cameron of Lochiel pitched his clansmen into Cope's right with terrifying ferocity, running through the enemy fire to close with swords and dirks and lacabre axes. This was where discipline, courage, and control came into play. Remember, these were inexperienced redcoats, mostly Scottish themselves, these are mostly Scots, that had been left behind while the main army went to fight in Europe. They had been on garrison duty for years, scattered across the country, unable to rehearse all the complicated drills and maneuvers required of an 18th century gunpowder army. 
And as this onrushing horde crashed in on these kids from the lowland farms and the streets of Edinburgh, they never stood a chance. It only took minutes for the Redcoats to break. They fled in all directions, some north, some south, some west, all panicking and trying their best to escape the screeching bagpipes and tornado of kilts and steel. The Highlanders pursued, hacking men down with the broadsword, until the bright red of the British uniforms was mixed with the dark stains of blood. The misty plain boiled over with screaming gunshots, loose horses racing away in the gloom, the crash and stamp of feet and the wailing of bagpipes. Whatever the fate of its soldiers, John Cope's army utterly disintegrated in the face of the Highland charge. Some survivors made it to northern England, where they found safety in Edinburgh Castle, which was still held by the British. The Battle of Preston Pans had lasted about 15 minutes. And the Highlanders inflicted severe wounds on the redcoats that fell in the chaos. The field of Preston Pans looked like a slaughterhouse, a bloody mess, covered in men hacked to pieces with broadswords or knives. In 18th century Europe, it was rare to see a battlefield with so many deaths and wounds from edged weapons. Most wounds were caused by musket fire or cannon fire. But this was a side effect of the aggressive and point-blank tactic of the Highland Charge. One local gentleman went out looking for his friend on the battlefield after everything was over. And here's what he said when he found him. Being found among the dead after all was over, he remained so butchered and mangled as scarce to be known, for his hands were cut off, and his head cleft to the chin, and his flesh almost stripped from his bones. Battlefields are always gruesome, but when edged weapons are the main killing machines, it's a different kind of gruesome, like a butcher shop. Murray was barely able to restrain the clansmen from killing everyone, even the wounded and prisoners. When Charlie arrived in the field that his generals had won, he was revolted by the bloodshed. I mean, he, of course he was. He was 24 years old. He'd never seen real war before. He could have egged his Highlanders on. He told him to leave, could have told him to leave no one alive. But Charlie wasn't a psychopath. Instead, he begged them to stop killing and make sure the wounded were cared for. Charlie yelled, Make prisoners! Spare them! They are my father's subjects! Basically, Cope's unlucky soldiers were supposed to be his people, too. Charlie's direct intervention saved at least 13 British officers from dying of their wounds. The Jacobites would be far more merciful in victory than the British would be at Culloden eight months later. The Jacobites lost about 35 killed at the Battle of Preston Pans, but the British lost 150 dead, a thousand prisoners, all their baggage, all their artillery, and even John Cope's war chest containing about 4,000 pounds. But just as importantly, it was a massive psychological boost to the Jacobite cause. Cope had fought a defensive battle on ground of his own choosing, with better weapons and better training, and the Highland Charge had still broken his army. It was a victory of willpower over material, but it helped to give Charlie a dangerous illusion that his Highlanders were invincible. It was similar to the delusions Robert E. Lee would hold about his own Confederate soldiers in the American Civil War. In both cases, these delusions cost their soldiers dearly. In Lee's case, it would be at Gettysburg at Pickett's Charge. In Charlie's case, it would be at Culloden. John Cope and what was left of his army found safety on the English side of the border near Newcastle. His defeat at Preston Pans became legendary for all the wrong reasons. He became a laughingstock with the whole song, Hey Johnny Cope, are you waking yet? 
written by the Jacobites to mock his dramatic defeat. Now, Cope blamed the defeat on the poor quality of his soldiers and officers. And though this is usually a crappy excuse given by a crappy general, he kinda had a point. He won't know genius, lord no, but he wasn't exactly leading the best and the brightest. His real mistake hadn't been at Preston Pans, but in letting Charlie break into the lowlands in the first place. Though he was exonerated by a court-martial in 1746, John Cope never held another command. Either way, the Battle of Preston Pans was a heavy blow to the Hanoverian cause. It was a tiny battle compared to the big European blowouts of the day. Each side had something like 2,500 men, in comparison to Fontenoy only a few months beforehand, where the Allies and the French each had almost 50,000. But this small battle had an enormous impact. In one single engagement, Charlie and Murray had blown away the only real force that could challenge them in Scotland. Except for a few fortresses across the country, the Jacobites now controlled Scotland. The victory of Preston Pans was also an important moral and symbolic victory. It shifted many of the Highland clan chieftain lowland lords that were still on the fence over to the Jacobite side. Even the French, who, like everyone else, had assumed the Stuarts were a lost cause, sat up and took notice. Preston Pans got everyone's attention. Because now it looked like this kid from Rome might actually have a chance. But Charlie wasn't done. After all, he hadn't just come to rule Scotland. He had come to take his father's kingdoms back. All of them. In the name of the Stuart dynasty. Even as he sat in his family's ancient palace in Edinburgh, Charlie's eyes were looking south to London. The myth and the legend of Bonnie Prince Charlie had already begun, as Scots everywhere began to place their hopes and dreams on him. He was an inspiring figure, the toast of Scotland, the hope of everyone who still chafed under the new order. The men wanted to follow him, the ladies wanted to admire him. Now, I don't want to exaggerate things too much. There were plenty of people in Scotland who wanted nothing to do with the evil Jacobites and their Catholic prince. But even the people who thought Charles was the devil thought he was a handsome, charming devil. The British government was now fully awake to the danger. This was no longer a local rebellion. It was a national emergency. Charlie had gone from being some adventurer with a handful of followers and a pocket full of coins to being a real threat to the new order. The shock was immense. It was the greatest threat the crown had faced in 50 years. One gentleman, Charles York in London, described it this way. It is indeed a dreadful and amazing consideration to reflect that the work of so many wise and honest men, of so many parliaments of 57 years, that a fabric of so much art and cost as the glorious revolution and its train of consequences should be in danger of being overwhelmed by the bursting of a cloud, which seemed at its first gathering no bigger than a man's hand. And that about sums up the threat Prince Charles posed. This was more than just who got to sit in the shiny chair. The Jacobite cause threatened to undo the entire fabric of the glorious revolution. The constitutional monarchy could be replaced by an absolute monarchy. The economic system of the banks and the national debt and the financial revolution could all be unraveled. The act of union could be broken. Scotland could regain its independence. And this Catholic prince could overthrow the Protestant supremacy that had dominated Britain since William and Mary. Bonnie Prince Charlie came closer than anyone, ever, to undoing and stopping 
the modern British state. He could change the future. Jacobitism was on the march, and now everyone was asking, who will be king but Charlie? Only two months after Charles Edward Stuart had landed, the 45 had succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Though many people had been part of its success, he never could have succeeded without the clan chiefs, the clansmen, the lowland lords, the people who chose to support him. The inspiration and the driving force had been this 24-year-old prince who had come to Scotland to fulfill his destiny. He had been the spark, with only seven companions, a pocket full of money and a few guns, He had rallied the clans, and now almost all of Scotland was under his control. The Jacobite dream, the Jacobite cause, had gone from being a lost cause to being a very real possibility. Maybe, just maybe, the bad luck of the Stuarts was finally turning around. Hey, thanks a bunch for sticking with me so far and coming along in this series. Thank you also for your continued support of this podcast. If you like what you hear, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just make sure they don't find out that you're a Jacobite. If you want to read some of the stuff I've written or just check out a bunch of my ramblings, go to my website, leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Give me any piece of feedback you want. I want to hear what you think. And don't put away those bagpipes because the story continues. Next week, we will follow Bonnie Prince Charlie and his Jacobite army on their fateful invasion of England, the great lightning strike that would shock the British Empire to its very foundations. And we will stand with them at a little town called Derby where they decide whether to play it safe and turn back or take the final plunge over the edge. So join me next week to continue the tale of the 45 on Unknown Soldiers.